Welcome to another edition of the Hawk Off the Press podcast. I'm your host, Hawkeye football beat reporter, John Steppe. I am joined today by Mike Carmen from the Lafayette Journal and Courier. Mike, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for uh, having me on. So first of all, for somebody who maybe hasn't seen much of Purdue play, what's kind of the scouting report for this 2021 Boilermaker team? Well, they get in the red zone and they don't score touchdowns. <laughs> that that's, sounds that's like that would be a little frustrating <laughs> for fans there. They've scored 13 points in the last three games, each game. One touchdown, two field goals. I'm uh, guessing fans are a little antsy then about that. Well, they, I, they, you know, they had a chance to be four and one uh, coming out of the Minnesota game, which would have been ideal for them. Um, but it, it didn't, it didn't work out because they couldn't score touchdowns in the red zone. Uh, and they've had a problem beating Minnesota uh, ever since PJ came. So it's, it's just one of those things It would have been the best case scenario for Purdue three and two, you know, as you look long-term of, of where they need to be and getting into a bowl game, it's not, a, it's not out of the question uh, that, you know, they, they could still reach the six win mark, but, being four and one would have been a much better situation <laughs> for them going into the second part of the season where, you know, they have Iowa this week, Wisconsin, you know, Michigan state, which at the beginning of the year, you didn't think would be as good as they are right now. Uh, they still have Ohio state to play. They still have to, they have to go to Nebraska. They still have to match up with Indiana. So they had a chance in the first five games, put themselves in a better position. But when you, uh, when you don't score touchdowns in the red zone, this is what happens. That's a tough draw, too, from the East Division to face those. Yeah, I mean, it's beginning of the year. You didn't think Michigan State would be 6-0 and right now. No, I, mean, I wouldn't always, have bet on that. No, they're, they're, they're always going to play Indiana because that's the crossover rivalry. And it, it just, you know, as it rotates through, this is, you know, the year they get Ohio State along with Michigan State, two, two teams that are, <laughs> that are really good right now. And, um, but – you know, it's the big 10. I think we're getting into the part of the schedule now where, you know, teams are going to take some losses and uh, things are going to kind of separate themselves. I think as we get through the month of October. So offensively, it seems like if I was looking at things, right, they do a two quarterback system. Well, not necessarily a two quarterback system. They've, they've started two different guys this year. Jack Plummer was named the starter coming out of camp. Um, And then, they made a change to Aiden O'Connell uh, going into the last game uh, against uh, Minnesota. Now, they did play another quarterback against Minnesota, Austin Burton, who's more of a, a dual-threat quarterback, gives them a, a bit of a, a, a runner, a runner, a mo- mo- more mobility there at that position that they can do some different things on short yardage situations because they just have not been able to generate a consistent running game uh, this year. And They've been last in the Big Ten in rushing yardage uh, the last two years. So they're just trying to find some different ways to, to run the ball. Um, I wouldn't call it a two-quarterback system. Jeff Brown's not afraid to put in a new quarterback or a different oh, quarterback I... if things aren't going well. Um, and you see it across college football all the time. Mm. And, you know, that's where I think a guy like Austin Burton can help them in some short yardage situation and may help them solve some of their red zone issues if you can get him out on the edge and some zone reads or some options um, and make the defense kind of commit one way or the other, maybe you can pick up 
a much needed touchdown or a much needed first down that way. As opposed to the continued going only for field goals in the red zone. <laughs> well, or just, you know, David Bell's got eight people around him. So maybe you should throw to somebody else type of thing. <laughs> uh, but I think their inability to run the ball traditionally is causing them problems in the, in the red zone. Cause you, you've got to be able to, to uh, get some yardage on the ground just because you don't have as much space to throw down there when you're at the 20, the 15 or the 10, it just space is a, is a premium commodity at that point. So they got to figure out a way to, to generate some yards uh, on the ground in the red zone. And you were just mentioning David Bell there. It sounds like he's quite the talent there at wide receiver, but it sounds like defenses also are well aware of that too. Very much so. I mean, David's their best player on offense and um, he's played like that just about in every game that he, that he plays Uh, talented wide receiver. I know Iowa really wanted him uh, coming out of Indianapolis, Uh, but he's made a, he's made a pretty good name for himself at Purdue. I mean, he is their number one receiver. He's going to get double covered, uh, but that doesn't seem to stop him. Uh, He'll go up and get balls. He's, uh, he's very fluid in his motion, his route running, uh, great hands. Uh, He's, he's the fastest receiver in Purdue history to get 2000 yards, not just in 40 times, but as far as (laughs) getting the 2000 yards faster than anybody. Uh, So yeah, he's, he's going to command a lot of attention and that, in theory, should open up some things for other people, but it hasn't always worked that way. And then what should people expect defensively from Purdue? Uh, it's a much better group than it was a year ago. Uh, they, they did hold Iowa to 20 points last season in the opener at, at Ross-Aid. Um, but it's just it's a, it's a team that's playing a little bit more aggressive. Uh, their defensive front has come a long way in a year, uh, led by George Karloftis at uh, defensive end he's their best defensive player um, he's he does you know the whole, the team in general doesn't have a lot of sacks but they have a lot of pressures they have a lot of hurries they just haven't had that that game or two where they're racking up four or five sacks they're, they're getting in the backfield uh, led by George and some other guys on that defensive line but uh, they haven't just come up with sacks they are impacting the quarterback in a way but not where he's losing yardage all the time. So um, linebackers are, are, are okay, not maybe not to strength. They're going to get a, a cornerback uh, returning this week, Corey Trice, one of their better defensive players, long, lanky, athletic kid who's going to play play cornerback for them. Uh, so that, that'll be a bonus uh, for them where they've been relying on two guys the last three games to play all the snaps. And I think they get, I think they get worn down, worn down a little bit, but, uh, defense is, you know, Jeff Brown made a bunch of changes in the offseason, coaching-wise, brought in four new defensive coaches, and, you know, that move has, has paid off up to this point. I don't think too many Iowa fans are looking forward to an improved defense after <laughs> remembering what happened last time around. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just a, it's a more organized defense. It's one that is playing forward instead of on their heels. Um they challenge more routes in the secondary. As I said, their defensive line really has gotten good pressure. Um, you know, they've given up, they've given up some rushing yardage, which as all teams do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just, you'd have to look at last year and then look at this year to see, see the difference. And there is a difference and they are, they are playing better and their defense has kept them in every game up to this point, but they need their offense to kind of 
jump in and say, here, we'll do something uh, and like score a touchdown in the red zone, <laughs> which would be good for them. <laughs> and then from an injury standpoint, Iowa was doing great until then Riley Moss went down in the Penn State game. How is Purdue doing health-wise for this time of year? Well, they're still without their top running back, Xander Horvath, who uh, suffered a broken fibula uh, against uh, Connecticut in the second game of the year. He will not be back this week, maybe next week, maybe the end of the month. But as I mentioned earlier, Corey Trice will come back this week after an ankle injury. He's missed the last three games. Uh, Tight end Payne Durham is expected back. He's missed the last game and a half. He got uh, he got concussed concussed in the Illinois game and he's been in protocol uh, the last couple of weeks. But he practiced Sunday and it appears all systems are go. David Bell took a big shot against Notre Dame. Uh, he missed uh, uh, he he missed uh, he missed a game, but he he played last week against Minnesota. And they've had some other guys in and out of the lineup, but Horvath's probably the big one that won't play. I think everybody else, uh, as far as I know, uh, when we're taping this, I, I think everybody else's would be good to go go right now. Okay. Wow. It sounds like Purdue then has been hit a little bit with the injury bug. Yeah, they got they uh, they took some lumps uh, in the first five games, been in and out, you know. But you know they were able to beat Illinois without David Bell and some of the other other guys. The running back King Daru missed the Illinois game, but he was back from Minnesota. Uh, you know, if they can get all their number one players on the field, you know, obviously they like their chances better and they like, you know, they like, they, they like what they can do for them, but you know, football is, you know, that's why you have 85 scholarship players and <laughs> two deep, two deep uh, depth charts because uh, you, you need more guys. And um, you know, and that's where the difference is probably with Purdue and some other programs. They just don't, don't have the depth that a lot of other places have. Yeah. I think the most, Prior to that Riley Moss injury for Iowa, the worst one was Tyler shot on the offensive line. It was the most Iowa injury ever. It was from a hay bailing accident. <laughs> I don't think you can get any more Iowa than that. Well, unless he was like uh, in the cornfield. <laughs> I don't Where know, apparently different. he was jumping off a hay bale and landed funny or something, which I guess would make sense considering a big D1, Big Ten offensive lineman jumping off a hay bale. Yeah, maybe a little risky there. Uh, I know what would happen if I jumped off a hay bale. <laughs> it would not you be have... good. <laughs> Do you have a score prediction yet for... Oh, I haven't, I haven't formulated a score yet. I mean, obviously Iowa is a favorite and Iowa has done everything right up to this point. Uh, you know, their defense is getting turnovers. The offense is taking advantage. Uh, they're very solid defensively. It's very hard to score on them. And uh, I think reading and listening today, I believe that, and you would know more than I, um, that the starting quarterback from each of the opponents, only one guy has finished the game. Is that correct? Yes. I think it was just Colorado State, I believe. I think that was the one that didn't finish or that did finish. Whether it, it was whether it was performance or injury related. Yeah, it's been a, incredible to see it. Where yeah. and some of those are incredibly well-regarded quarterbacks going into it. Like yeah. 
Talia Tungo-Vailoa, like I saw like one tweet that was granted it's a tweet. So take it for what it's worth. <laughs> but I saw one thing that was kind of putting him almost in the Heisman conversation before that. And then I was thinking in College Park, eh, I don't think he's going to be in the Heisman conversation anymore after that one. That was a yeah. ugly six one. Um, he had, I think, five of the six. I think the sixth oh, okay. one was the backup quarterback. So that one was kind of garbage time. Um, but still five after I don't think he had more than two in a game before that. It was incredible where I was thinking, okay, four, that's done. As I'm writing my recap, it's like, okay, I can put that number in. Oh, wait, nope. Got to change that to five. Oh, wait, got to change that to six. So if Purdue has to go to another quarterback for whatever reason, at least, you know, because I assume Aiden O'Connell will start and then they have to go to Jack Plummer. It's a guy, guy that, you know, the one difference maybe between Purdue and some of the other teams that they've played is that Purdue has a, a backup that has actually <laughs> played and started. So uh, that if they have to go that route, at least they're comfortable with someone with some experience. But it's just <laughs> I thought that was an interesting stat that, that, that Iowa has forced uh, teams to get to their backup quarterback for different reasons. Oh, yeah. Uh, but the, obviously that changed the game on Saturday for, for Iowa and Penn State. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know position. if Iowa wins that, if Sean Clifford can play both halves. Well, one wouldn't think so. I mean, I, the way that they were moving the ball and the way they were running the offense, and they seemed to have a, a pretty good handle on the Iowa's defense uh, that you had to respect both the pass and the run. But when the backup got in there, you didn't really – well, they didn't – I don't think they respected either part of his game <laughs> uh, because he just – he didn't have that kind of experience. The, no. the, the one thing the one thing I noticed in watching the game was that when they played fast, that is Penn State, they, they seemed to have some success. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and But they, for whatever reason, they were not able to maintain that or sustain that or didn't feel like that was the, the way to go uh, as they got deeper into the game. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, I've heard a lot of people say, well, yeah, Clifford stays and Penn State wins. Yeah, it, it, it's easy to say that. But, you know, Iowa's defense is really good. Oh, yeah. You don't know yeah, how many more interceptions there would have been. Right. Uh, you just don't know how a game unfolds uh, in that situation. But, you know, quickly it became a field position game that I was was willing to play, which they play every week when you get right down to it, uh, <laughs> that if they could just keep Penn State backed up, then they would uh, they would make the mistakes that they needed to make. And, and to me, the, the most fascinating thing was – and I went back and looked it up. I hope that number was correct, but eight false starts. Yes, that was State's correct. Offense. Eight Pinnick false was starts. Louder than I think anything I've seen before. Well, it was no. quite the environment where one person took a picture of their Apple Watch during the game and it has the noise like warnings when you're in a really loud setting. And <laughs> the watch hit 117 decibels. Wow. Which I think is like a jet engine, if I remember correctly. So it was a it was a loud environment where the one of the team photographers tweeted about how he thought that his custom earplugs weren't in because his ears were starting to ring. 
and he realized they were in it was just that loud. No, I mean, it was loud on TV, but I can imagine being there. Uh, it really probably went up even higher. But, yeah. you know, obviously Purdue can't get itself in that situation. I doubt the crowd's going to need to be that loud this week. Yeah, I don't uh, think that they're going to get the same excitement. <laughs> Fox Big Noon kickoff isn't going to be rolling up on the Pendercrest this week. Well, which, you know, could play into Purdue's favor a little bit. I mean, I think the most popular word around Iowa City, either way you want to use it, is letdown. You know, how do they avoid it? How do, you know, can Purdue take advantage of it? Uh, How do you you gear back up again to play? And, you know, Kurt Ferentz has been been through situations like this a thousand times. Um, So he'll have his team ready. But there's, there's, there's a natural letdown you know, probably going to happen at, at some point just because that's human nature. And, oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and Purdue just, number one, Purdue doesn't have a number by its name. <laughs> and number two, Purdue is, you know, Purdue. And that doesn't really <laughs> cause opposing teams to get that excited uh, yeah. about Purdue coming to town. So, you know, if, if, if that can work in Purdue's favor, you know, they need, they need a lot of things, I think, to work in their favor for this game. You know, if that's one of them, then, you know, maybe they can hang around and uh, have have an opportunity at some point to uh, to to make a play and you know change things up a little bit. Yeah, well, people have been using the word trap game a lot. I've already heard it a fair amount because, as you were saying, it is. I mean, Penn State, you're kind of getting up real excited, and then Purdue it just doesn't have the same ring to it as number three versus number four. And you aren't going to have the same, like you can try to prepare the same way as you do every week. Um, I mean, kind of the cliche there that we hear all the time, but it's still different when you don't have the media attention that you're getting going into a top five matchup when you're not getting the classmates visit or saying things to you in class about it, when you're not getting the messages from family who obviously has not been told by Kurt Ferentz several times that it's just any other game. So well, you, I mean, I, I assume our today, you know, Sunday and today they're getting pats on the back from their classmates and oh, yeah. messages on the, on, on social media and their phone about how great it was, you know, I, the, the, the sooner they let that go, you know, the better off they're going to be. But if stuff like that lingers, end of the week and it, it hurts the preparation or just hurts the focus. You do open the door because, you know, Purdue does have some weapons. Uh, you know, maybe their key is just not to get in the red zone and score before they get to the red zone <laughs> and, and do it that way. 21 but, each drive. Right. Yeah. But I mean, uh, you have to keep in mind, Jeff Brom is three and one against Kurt Ferentz. So, um, you know, they've had some success against Iowa. Um, doesn't mean that it's going to continue, but they have, they formulated something to, to beat Iowa three times in four years. So um, it, is, it is a bit of a trap game for Iowa, but, you know, I think at the end of the game, they, they probably get themselves, if there is any hiccups, they probably get that straightened out and probably, you know, get on to get on with a victory. Yeah. People were talking about the 24 hour rule a lot after Saturday where, okay, we have 24 hours to celebrate this. Barron's emphasized celebrating safely. Um, <laughs> Iowa City, when I left Kinnick, it was probably like 1130-ish. 
And I did make a stop through downtown Iowa City and people did seem to be enjoying themselves. There weren't any cars being flipped or anything crazy, but. Well, they haven't won anything yet, really. Yeah. Uh, Still got some time there. Yes. They're six and oh, they got six more games. So they haven't won anything to, uh, to set a couch on fire yet. No, go 12 and 0, then they can set a couch on fire. <laughs> well, Mike, thanks for joining me. Well, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure uh, talking about the game Saturday and uh, look forward to it coming up. Yes, I will see you at Kinnick on Saturday. All right. Thank you. The next guest on the Hawk Off the Press podcast is our higher education reporter, Vanessa Miller. Vanessa, thanks for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot to discuss here with this Title IX lawsuit. So for someone who maybe didn't see your article, what's kind of the basic summary of what happened last week? Yeah, well, I guess what happened last week stems to what happened last year. Um, which is around uh, in the summer months, kind of looking at the fallout from COVID-19 and the impact it had on the bud- on the athletics department's budget, just because they didn't have in-person sports and all sorts of things. They, um, Gary Barta came out and announced that they were looking at a, at the time they thought it was like a $75 million plus deficit. And that Big number there. Right. Yeah. Because of that, he said they were going to eliminate four sports. So three men's sports, one women's sports, those like the men's swimming and diving, women's swimming and diving, men's tennis and men's gymnastics. Um, Obviously, this created quite an outcry. Um, There still is a pretty large group of people who want to sort of um, save Iowa, save Hawkeye sports, which are pushing for the return of those men's sports that were eliminated. But one step that the women took was uh, to file a Title IX lawsuit, um, accusing the University of Iowa of uh, not only, you know, being out of compliance in their actions here specifically to eliminate the women's swimming program, but saying that they have been out of compliance for years. Um, Because Title IX says that you have to offer the same percentage of athletic opportunities, scholarships, all these things as the percentage um, of students enrolled in the university. So there is actually a majority for, for women students to men. So they have to have more, more women's sports is what they're arguing, um, or, or more female opportunities. So that's what this lawsuit argues. Uh, they go, they go on for a bit, argue back and forth in court documents, a judge files a temporary injunction, sort of, um, sort of temporary uh, pre- uh, prohibiting the university from cutting the women's, so, so they have to sort of forcing the, the university to at least temporarily reinstate the women's swimming and diving program. That prompted the university to just come out and announce they were going to permanently do it because the judge ruled in part that they had a likelihood, the women, uh, of succeeding at the end. And that's why she issued that temporary injunction. And so the university is now looking at uh, the likelihood they're going to lose this lawsuit. So they go ahead and do that. And then that propels, you know, settlement talks in the background. So um, obviously I think I forget the exact date, but last month they announced obviously that women, that they were going to start a women's wrestling program, um, which, uh, which they cited at the time was connected to this title IX settlement. Um, Director Barta said, you know, we've been wanting to do this for a long time. Uh, we've talked about it. 
obviously this didn't seem like the right time for us because we're cutting sports, you know, when we're looking at some losses still from last year. Um, but saying that because of the settlement, we agreed to go ahead and, and do this now and that they're still excited about it, but it's the timing, you know, that's propelled uh, by, by the settlement to do it right now. Um, and so then we obtained, the Gazette obtained the full settlement last week. So we were able to see a lot of the details beyond just starting a women's wrestling program. So it sounds like for the swimming and diving team, the thing that kind of started this whole process Now, Iowa has to keep that team for a while under the settlement, right? Yes. Yep. That was one of the, that was one of the agreements. And I'm just looking at the settlement over here. Um, But, uh, but one of the, one of the deals was that they had to agree to keep that women's program for at least seven years. Uh, It says committed to retaining women swimming and diving for no less than seven years. So that would push that to 2028, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously the women would be hoping that the program would stay longer <laughs> than that. Um, but it sounds like, and, and they also say in this settlement, I should know this sort of uh, sentence before this is that it says, while defendants do not have any current plans to eliminate women's swimming and diving or any other team. That's what the settlement says. Defendants commit to retaining women's swimming and diving for no less than seven years. So at least seven years, but they also say, they want to put this out there that they aren't planning to cut that sport after that or anytime soon or whatever, but, but at least seven years. <laughs> <laughs> and that's quite a while. And you think about, it feels like the last year has been a century. So then mm, you yeah. look out seven years. So then with one of the interesting things that kind of caught my eye was the cap on the rowing roster. Mm-hmm. So why is that cap? You would think maybe at first glance, oh, why would this be better for Title IX to have fewer rowing athletes? But what's kind of the reasoning behind having that cap? Because it sounds like it's actually supposed to help Title IX to have fewer rowers. Yeah, well, that's the that's the female athlete's argument. And I just want to preface this by saying that what I'm going to tell you is the argument from the female athletes and the University of Iowa pretty, you know, they contend that they argue that that they're in compliance and they don't do any of this stuff with their rowing program. But the women were saying that they sort of inflate the rowing roster. Um, and that's where they they strike that balance to try to get close to complying with Title IX is they just put like a hundred plus women on the rowing roster. You know what I'm saying? So they don't and have to probably create- playing time for a hundred plus rowers either that's what they argue they argue that there are some that get sort of a jv experience is what they called it and that there's like the varsity team and there's jv experience again the rowing coach who recently resigned um said that's not true that nobody has a jv experience um and the their argument was looking at sort of what they report to the to the federal government you know and then what what is actually even on their website, they're saying there's a mismatch there. So these formal documents they have to report to the to the feds show them at a hundred plus or whatever. And then and then maybe there is actually like far fewer people actually on the team or on the roster. The university argues that's like a a fluid thing that the roster changes and ebbs and flows as they recruit and as people actually sign up or whatever. So they're saying they don't do that. But the idea behind the cap uh, 
is that they they want to stop the university from being able to use rowing as sort of a scapegoat, like a, a way to like get all their female women in there and that they're sort of in compliance with Title IX or whatever. They say, do rowing, that's great, you know, but then also create this women's wrestling program. They have a woman there that wants to get a rugby team for women. You know, there's the idea of like ice hockey is a thing in some for some schools for women. So they want them to actually provide more legitimate female um, athletic opportunities and scholarships. Now, does the settlement um, take steps there? I think a lot of people, I mean, considering how excited people were for Extreme Arena, I think there would be a lot of interest, especially around like a women's ice hockey. Was there anything in the settlement in particular that makes it kind of that leads maybe that next step to have more women's teams added in the future? I mean, wrestling is the only one that's really named specifically. Um, of course, and, and maybe you were going to get to this, but they do have they do have this um, appointment of a new Title IX, you know, monitor, compliance monitor, who they said will work with them for at least the next three years to help them figure some of this out and make sure that they're in compliance. Um, maybe maybe he might suggest something like along those lines. I'm not sure, but but again, this settlement uh, only mentions the sports that it specifically mentions are women swimming and diving, wrestling, um, and rowing. You know, as having something to do. With. Yeah. And then leading right into my next question there about the monitor, like mind reading there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so how does that work? So the person right now is at Tulane, right? Yes. His name is Gabriel Feldman. And I think he has kind of an interesting, I'm going to see, I pulled it up here, but um, he has kind of an interesting background in, in a lot of stuff. Um, that he's done, yeah, he's at Tulane, um, but he also is like currently on the Drug Testing Appeals Committee for the NCAA. Um, he is uh, a reporter for for the NCAA, I think, on um, Uniform, on its new like Name, Image, and Likeness Committee. There's all, I mean, he's got like a long sort of history. He's actually a legal analyst for the NFL Network. Um, So he's got kind of an interesting, you know, resume here. Um, And yeah, I mean, my understanding, and I I could be wrong, but that he's obviously going to stay at at Tulane and then continue like doing all of this array of of work that he's doing, um, but that he also is going to monitor UI's Title IX compliance. And it says it breaks it down. It says he's gonna he's gonna monitor um, that for three specific aspects: so equal participation opportunities, equal benefits and treatment, and then equal uh, scholarship opportunities. Um, so, and then it says though, but within that, like within the equal benefits, it's gonna have sort of a quote laundry list of items. Um, so he's gonna do all that, and then and then he's going to be very transparent. It says about any Title IX failings that he comes across, and he has in the university athletics department has to put this annual report that he'll produce on its website uh, no later than October first of every year. And so the first report we can expect next October in twenty twenty two. Oh wow! So that's gonna be one busy guy there doing yeah, all of those. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking I as I was hearing that, wow, each one of those would be like a full-time job, let alone all of those. Right, right. And I'm not, it doesn't spell out exactly how he's going to be doing his monitoring, whether he's going to be 
on scene, you know, digging through records himself and meeting with people or relying on the university to report things to him. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't break it down in terms of how, and I have reached out to him just as a side note for an interview or to kind of answer some of these questions and I haven't heard back. His vo- actually, I emailed him, but his voicemail was full, which I was like, hmm, I bet it is, because <laughs> you know, because we like named him and everybody named him. So yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing probably a busy guy now. Yeah, yeah, I'm assuming maybe it was full before, but oh. certainly full now. <laughs> well, anything else that'd be good for people to know about this Title IX settlement? I mean, just one little, this was actually, the the students who sued were not going after money. They were going after um, the changes that they want to see on campus and for female athletes. Um, But I just should know that as part of the settlement, the university has agreed to pay the court costs and fees for the students. So that amounted to about $400,000. Um, So when people see that number, it's not like they're all of a sudden like, oh, we're going to make some money here. No, it's the legal costs there that come with something as large as this. Yes. Yeah, I should know. I mean, obviously, people have, uh, they, you know, talk about how much the university has paid in settlements uh, of late. And they're obviously in a separate sort of... uh, civil rights related lawsuit, you know, with the, the formal football players and things like that. Um, so there's all of, all of that, but, but, you know, the, I did like request the actual budgets for um, those sports that were cut, you know, and they, they aren't actually very high, like they're, they're modest because they're, you know, smaller Olympic sports. And so like, I just should note like the 2021 uh, operating budget for men's gymnastics was six hundred and ten thousand dollars. You know, so oh, wow. Not, so they're not paying much more than <laughs> almost as much in settlements as they would in a year to keep one of those sports. Yeah, and like men's tennis, it was six hundred forty-three thousand. You know, so I mean, it's just that's that's kind of part of the contention. Uh, you know, for those, those proponents of those sports to be returned, you know, that they, they say, you you didn't have to go this route, and they're trying to raise money and everything. So again, that's not a lot of money for the university athletics firm, that $400,000. But, you know, again, it's about as much as they were paying to keep one of those sports. Yeah. Wow. And you were mentioning the other lawsuit, the racial discrimination one, there's some news with that last week as well, right? Um, yeah, that was more related to that's, um, you know, on track for trial, they, they indicate in the legal documents, they're actually not engaging in significant settlement talks at this time. Um, but that was more about, uh, they do these things, you know, called depositions on the way to trial, where they get the main sort of witnesses, and the people involved to sit down and sort of give them all the information and answer all their questions so that they can prepare for trial and they request documents. It's called discovery, all this stuff. And um, the, the plaintiffs, so the former athletes are asking the UI for a lot of documents and to do these depositions and they want them done in a timely way because they want to be able to get their, their stuff in order. But the, um, but the university, so, so they sort of, put out this request to do their depositions like uh, October uh, next week or whatever their bye week is at the end of this Mm -hmm. month. Um, 
And they were like, no, we're in the middle of the football season. We can't do your depositions right now because it takes time. And so anyway, it was some of that, it was some of that back and forth, like the university accusing these plaintiffs of, of harassment, you know, literally saying, saying, stop bothering us with this right now. We told you we can't do it right now. And I'm saying, well, they don't get special treatment because they're playing their football coaches and they make the big bucks or whatever. So it was some back and forth, but the judge did just decide that we're going to do this after after the football season because you want to get meaningful stuff. You know, you don't want them yeah. to rush this process. And the trial isn't actually set until 2023. So she's like, there's plenty of time. Nobody's getting shorted any any fair process or due process or whatever. Um, just saying it makes the most sense. But she also sort of said to take the plaintiff's side, like, we don't think they're harassing you. We're not, I'm not accusing them of, of harassing as the mm. university is. I'm just saying it makes the most sense probably for everybody to just wait until January. Well, thank you, Vanessa. I really appreciate this. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me anytime. Well, we will be back with another audition of Hawk Off the Press. We'll be back to me and Mike after the game Saturday for an edition of After the Final Score. Until then, I will talk Hawks later. Mm-hmm.